Before we dive in to this episode, I have to tell you what is up on Patreon because I have made so many changes. I put so much into it this summer and there's so much to be had over on Patreon. So first off, you can become a member for just $5 a month or we also have a pay what you can option at $1 a month because you know, stuff is crazy out there, you guys. I get it. And here's what you get when you sign up on Patreon. One bonus episode every month, an extra episode of a book that is only for Patreon subscribers. We have also started running ads on this podcast. I held out for a long time, but finally I caved. And now that we have ads, if you don't want ads anymore, all the episodes on Patreon will go to your podcast feed without ads if you just sign up for Patreon. So all episodes from here going forward, ad free. We also have access to something called a lounge. They gave us early exclusive access. It's been awesome. So basically become a member of the Patreon. We have a cookies only chat where all cookies can talk to each other. It's like a real digital book club where you can talk about books, the episodes. We talked about the Barbie movie, like so much conversation is going on there. That is where all my focus is going as well. That is where all the conversation is happening. You also get, oh my God, there's more. You also get an email of photos that go with the episode and you get emailed that every time an episode comes up. So everything we talked about in the episode, a photo of it will be sent to you as well as the reading list for the month if you want to read along. If you love this podcast, if you want to support this podcast, join the Patreon. It's so much fun. There's so much fun to be had over there. And also we are fully independent. We run fully by your Patreon support. So consider supporting us over there for just $5 a month um, and a pay what you can option at $1. And it's linked in the show notes. It is www.patreon.com slash Chelsea Devantes. If you just want to type it in, uh, it takes two seconds. We send you a podcast feed. You get all of the bonus ad-free stuff. So easy. And um, I'll see you over there in the lounge if you join the Patreon. Welcome to Celebrity Book Club. This is a podcast that recaps and celebrates female celebrity memoirs. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. And this week we are book clubbing Gina Davis's book published quietly, almost whispered, a whispered publishing in 2022 titled Dying of Politeness. I cannot wait to get into this book. I read it way back when it first came out. And the predominant word I would use for it is delightful. It is so delightful. It was so lovely. She didn't give a ton of tea, but she did give some real good juice. I really loved reading this book. There was so much I didn't know about her, which is wild because I'm a huge fan of her. So I was I was really shocked by a lot, which I found riveting. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, when I uh, literally almost died of politeness, uh, when I was about eight or so, Uncle Jack was driving us back to his house, who's 99 uh-huh. years old. And so, taking a kind of beer in the oncoming lane, <laughs> back, and, and my parents realized this was going on. And I was sitting right behind him and they put me in between them because I would die a little less. <laughs> but finally he veers over and he stays straddling the line and a car is coming and we are going to be killed. And my parents say nothing. And we're a millisecond away from, you know, having this accident. And finally, my great aunt says, a little to the right, Jack. (laughs) Well, it's only, you know, later that I realize they were willing to die (laughs) 
literally die rather than say something. Okay, we are diving into everything today with our amazing guest. She is one half of the Tompkins comedy super couple. She's going to be on Night Court this season. She hosts Stay at Homekins, a monthly date night podcast. It's Janie Haddad Tompkins. What's up? Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. We have never met IRL. This is like our first... Uh, like computer meeting, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like, we have a fun uh, meeting story because we—I believe we were set up. We were set <laughs> for up a blind date. Yeah, like by by like uh, like podcast fans, someone who listens to your yeah. podcast and someone who listens to my podcast. Yeah, it was so. It was like months ago, but I think because I love memoir, I, memoir is one of my favorite genres to read. And so I've talked no a lot about okay. like celeb like liking different celebrity memoirs on my podcast. And I then became aware that you had this podcast and someone's like, oh my God, you guys should be on it. And I was like, Well, yeah, I'll talk about any memoir. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I I I felt like I I maybe mistakenly felt like we knew each other. So I was like, of course she should go on the well, podcast. Well, I feel like I know you because I have followed you on social media for, like prior to this. And we have a yeah, lot of overlapping yeah. people that we know in common. Um, we do. And we have uh, one magical quarantine moment. I'm not even, I don't even know if you know about it, but um, your husband was on a next door app group when someone found uh, an, a package of mine <gasps> that had been delivered like miles away. No way. And some, someone was like, does anyone know who this person is? <laughs> and Paul was like, I do. And through mutual friends, uh, got, got in contact package. with me. I love, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I feel like we're and super close. We're definitely close. destined to be together. Definitely destined to podcast together. Um, okay. So let's dive in to Gina's book. Yes. So did you enjoy reading this book? I loved the book and I loved yeah. Gina D- Davis. And I, and Same. I agree. It was, it is not like, it's not a super intense one where people are like, you know, spilling, tr- there's not a lot of like trauma spilling or whatever, but there's a lot of experience shared. And I, I really like, she does like share her journey from like being like an unvoiced, polite person to like a more empowered, you know, standing up for themselves person. And I, yep, I appreciate totally that. Agree. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it too. I normally, I, I really do love when books, tra- you can call it trauma dumping totally. or trauma sharing. I actually really love that shit. Yes. Um, so I, it's rare for me to like a book that skims. Agreed. She's a skimmer. Agreed. And, but she adds such depth to it uh, that it actually felt like a very lighthearted read, which was a really nice experience. And I completely agree that I came to this thinking Gina Davis, the incredible Olympic warrior woman who crushes life. And I read the title of her book, Dying of Politeness, and I was taken aback. I was like, what? Yeah. Like, that is not Gina Davis in my heart. And so reading um, not only her journey of how she got to be in her first chapter, she says, like, a badass, but— uh, she she also like as of like two minutes ago still is like dying of politeness sometimes it's not like yes yeah, so she has to fight her upbringing and her socialization and stuff yeah. like that and the and the cover too is like her, she's having like tea with a is it tea with a bear yeah and she's like holding its hand <laughs> yeah yeah like she she's yeah she's she remains private but also shares a lot at the same time yes. it's a very delicate balance I, I totally agree and I would say uh, the other huge headline for me that we will get into the details mm-hmm. on is that uh, this bitch. Is 
is the Elizabeth Taylor of our time. Had no idea. With marriages. Didn't know. Nobody knows. I didn't know. And I was like, <laughs> oh. I mean, I think I knew about, like, Jeff Goldblum because they had a very public relationship. But the other <laughs> guys, I was no, like, oh, I, okay. Even after the book came out, and, and I— I wish I could study it as to, like, how some women have to endure this headline, like Jennifer Lopez or Elizabeth Taylor, you know, of just, like, uh, Taylor Swift. Like, she's just, you know, going through men, blah, 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 which is, like, totally fucked up. And then over here is Gina Davis, married four times, yeah. I think engaged two or three on top of that, currently uh, divorced again, living her best fucking life, and uh, and has totally escaped that headline. I wish I, wish I could study it. <laughs> I don't know how she did it. I really don't. Maybe it was her politeness, honestly. Maybe. And also, she is very private. She, like, knows how to handle the how to handle the press or something, maybe. Yes, yes, <laughs> totally. Um, okay, well, let's get into it. Maybe we'll find the answer by the end of this podcast. I hope so. <laughs> so, um, at the very beginning of the book, she— it, it is, again, like, just so much badassery. She had her kids when she was 46 yeah. and 48. And— this is, I don't want to speculate on anyone's birth, but like given her age, you might be like, oh, surrogate. But she also had twins, which is a really, um, a really common IVF thing. Yeah. When, yeah, which I know from reading Mariah Carey's book and Celine Dion's <laughs> book. <laughs> and she doesn't get into the birth of her children. She doesn't barely even includes her kids. Yes. But I just thought it was so cool that she brought children into her life at that age. Yeah, I thought that was cool too. Like that she thought about it and she definitely wanted it and she chose it. And I think that's awesome. I personally am a child-free person, but, you know, like, I respect when people kind of go for it, you know? Yeah, I read it, and I thought, you know what, I think that's me. I think, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to adopt or foster, foster to adopt, and I keep thinking I'll be ready, but I bet it's going to be when I'm, like, 50. I mean, honestly, like, I think about that sometimes, because I never really wanted to be a parent, but I don't not want to be a grandparent. <laughs> I think a lot of people have that in common with you. So very early on, this uh, need, um, not even need, but this adamant request of her personality to be polite and quiet and never just be very polite comes from her parents. Mm -hmm. And she has this story of when she's a child is she accidentally clocks her head on the pew. So oh, she yeah. writes... Somehow I managed to clock my head on the pew in front of us. The bonk of my skull hitting wood was so loud, everything stopped. The congregation held its collective breath to see how much bloody murder I was about to scream. And then nothing. Mom said she grabbed me and held me tightly, quietly saying, shh, shh. This became one of her favorite stories about me, which I heard many times, and she didn't make a peep, she'd say proudly, as if I'd passed some kind of cosmic test, which I had maintained decorum and invisibility. Mm. Yeah. And then she says, um, uh, this has become one of the key push-pulls of my life, being invisible while being as visible as possible. Assertive yet modest, loud yet shy, something very New England, very self-effacing, was banged into my skull that Sunday. I, I relate, I, I was raised in the South and it's different than the New England vibe where you are very reserved. Like it's, but there is a similar like pleasing element, like a people pleasing, like uh, going out of your way to make other people comfortable. And I think yeah. the, the dark side of that is ignoring your own comfort. <laughs> and uh, I related to that story. She tells another story about the uncle, like almost veering into the wrong lane and like no one says any, 
thing. Because they don't want to, like, offend him by pointing out he's about to crash the car. Yes. And, I mean, I— I just related to this. Like, even in my 20s, I I banged my leg in a rehearsal. I was doing a theater play in um, in grad school. And it, w- it hurt so badly. And I just pretended like I was fine. But I had like a like a bruise on my bone that didn't heal for like six weeks or whatever <laughs> on my shin. But like, I was like, oh, this is what it's like when you're socialized to an extreme as a woman. Like, it's almost like you feel scared to draw too much attention to yourself or something. Like, there's a weird survival thing. The first time I heard of it was um, in session with my therapist. But there's this parenting thing where it's like, yes, it's about the physical pain, but also about the psychology being taught to you when, like, you're a little kid and you bang your knee or you fall, like, at the play. And a parent says, you're okay. Brush it off. Keep going. Yeah. As opposed to saying, like, does it hurt? Yes. And how it kind of um, it makes you question your own capabilities to assess pain, to assess hurt, yes. to assess when you're in trouble, to assess when you need help. And it makes you think that you don't have, that you cannot trust your gauge of when you need help and then you go through life even more fucked up than that event. Yes. Okay. Let's dive back in. So uh, I want to give um, a trigger warning um, for sexual abuse because she, when she's 11, she's like going down the street and Um, This neighbor always asks her for hugs, and they're really, really long, and they get longer and longer. She calls him Mr. Teller. Hope it's real name. Hope it's his real name. (laughs) And he gives her long hugs, and then he um, molests her with his hand. Yeah. And very luckily, she goes home to her mom, and she's like, why does Mr. Teller do this when he hugs you? And she demonstrates it to her mom, and her mom's like, give me just one moment. Yeah. (laughs) And walks down the street and is like, whatever she does. However— he does not get in trouble. Gina's never spoken to about, like, that was wrong, blah, 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 because, again, it's, like, not polite. Um, and so that also, like, really stuns her. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the description of, like, her New England upbringing is so culturally interesting to me because, like, there's something very puritanical feeling about it. Yes. Yes, it is. And I am not, I, I've spent a lot of time in New England, but I am I am probably the opposite of a New England woman. <laughs> yeah. So it was really wonderful getting this window into it. And she feels so constrained by her upbringing and she's tall. She's 5'10", but, but to everyone around her, she's just like this like gangly beast woman. Yeah. And she wants to get away. She wants to go study abroad. And the only program she can find that will take her is in Sweden. <laughs> yes. But she doesn't learn any <laughs> Swedish. Right. She just shows up, and then all of a sudden, she's like, oh, my God, I don't know how to speak Swedish. (laughs) And she tries to go home the whole year. And by the end of it, she comes away believing, thank God my parents made me stay. I had just, like, such an incredible, life-altering experience where I grew up, and I I learned so many things. And and she does learn Swedish. She has her first orgasm. She meets, like, a cute guy over there, I guess, or whatever. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, she says she's fluent in more more than just a language by the time (laughs) she comes home. But when she gets home, she says to her mom, like, I'm really glad you taught me the lesson to just, you know, stick stick it it through and get over my homesickness, even though the homesickness lasted about eight months. And her mom says, oh, no, we were fine with you coming home. We just didn't want the other exchange student, who was a Swedish man named Lars living in their town, to think 
that you wouldn't want to live with his parents. That would be so impolite. So we left you there for the year. Yeah, that's insane. That's insane. It's insane. I mean, insane. I'm on the, the way she talks about her family, it's not like critical though. It's just that this is uh, this was their mindset. This is the mindset that yeah. she has learned to sort of navigate and I guess heal herself from. Yes. And then uh, we're going to play Drinking Club, Drinking Club. It's a celebrity book club, not a drinking club, Chelsea. <laughs> and we're playing bingo, and I'm calling bingo because for whatever fucking reason, Henry Kissinger is in this book, and he is just <laughs> in so many memoirs. It totally crushes me. Argued war criminal. Like, what is he doing in He's here? He's like the for the Forrest Gump of memoir. <laughs> he really is. Mick Jagger has been our big Forrest Gump, yeah. and I swear to God, Kissinger is about to eclipse him. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and then she basically moves to New York, and she has a plan. She's like, I'm so tall. I'm going to be, be a, a model. model. Yeah. And through <laughs> modeling, I'm going to be able to do my real dream, which is to be an actor. Which is not actually an uncommon path. Yeah. For women who are beautiful and tall and fit the specs of, like, what commercial modeling requires of you, in a, in a way. And she didn't learn it from someone else or a book. She just—which is— which is wild because it is a pretty. There's a lower. It works. There is a le- there's less friction to entry, I think, for modeling if you are physically of a certain way, whereas acting, yes. you you know, yes. you have to kind of come and like show a little more chops or connections or classes or whatever. Something. Yeah. And her modeling agency that she eventually gets signed with after everyone tells her she's uh, too old and not pretty enough and she gets <laughs> signed at 18, she she's basically like their one actor. So yes. every time there's there's an audition saying we're looking for a model who can, who can act, it. she'd be the one girl sent out. Yes. Uh, which is so great. She gets a job at a department store the day she arrives in New York City. Okay, yes. And then two things happen. She starts sitting in the window and acting like a mannequin. <laughs> yes. And it gets so much attention that it becomes her full-time job because it starts attracting like customers. Like, full-on performance artist. Like, she's, like, yes. a full-on, like, Greenwich Village style. Like, dressed in silver, yes. doing the robot, yes. waiting for tips. Like, like yes. performance artist, but in probably, like, an uptown department store window. And she yes. throws and she's herself so in it. Good. Like, yeah, she's so good at, at, at holding still that people come and they're like, no, no, it's definitely a mannequin. Yes. And she's model, so she looks like one. And then she would just give just the slightest little breath and you'd hear the audience gasp. And it was like, it was thrilling for her to, to like yeah. trick people. Yeah, I bet. That's hilarious. And then she also apparently marries the first man she sees. <laughs> oh, she okay. says it like a joke, but it also <laughs> sounds pretty correct. Um, and she... She, she writes this. It's like their honeymoon paragraph, and I want to read it. Okay. The reception was in the fellowship hall next to the church, which had a very strict rule of no alcohol except for wedding receptions, where one flute of champagne per person was permitted. Later, we drove down to Connecticut to celebrate with some New York friends, where my new husband managed to leave my suitcases on the sidewalk outside a bar. When I realized this all the way back in New York, I'm ashamed to admit I said, if I had a knife right now, I'd stab you in the heart. A single glass of champagne and a death threat. This was the start of my first marriage. Yeah, it's kind of— it's kind of a bummer. Yeah, absolutely. And she is so sheltered that it it makes sense. But then it's also so wild because they're married for a pretty long time. And I want to actually go every relationship in this book from marriage to engagement ends in three sentences or less. So yeah. she's like, I married this guy. 
Then you go back into her career and then she's like, and now I'm in LA and it just didn't work and we remain great friends till this day. She's very like kind about everybody. She's like, F it. This is about me, not the freaking men in my... <laughs> but you know what? I don't, I don't see it like that. You wanted more dirt on these dudes. <laughs> but even more than that, I wanted her feelings. Yeah. Like, what are your feelings? And like to have four marriages and a few engagements, like what are we like? That is an experience of either like, uh, you know, we're only meant to be with people for short amounts of time or um, I, you know, I picked the wrong guys or I, whatever it or is. Or maybe like, there she is doesn't allow there. herself. I don't know. I mean, maybe she doesn't allow herself much attachment because she's like, my career comes first or something. Like, I don't know. Yeah, but she but doesn't then there's say like that. that decade in her 40s where she's like, I barely worked at all. Like, it just... She doesn't give us much, and I'm dying to know because I want to, like, I don't know. She seems so cool. I would love to know how a woman like that went through those relationships and remained friends. Yeah, she plays it close to the chest. She definitely plays it close to the chest. So she is modeling, and she's, (laughs) like, getting modeling parts is that yeah getting getting booked on modeling gigs a lot harder for her and she gets a lot of them because she can like play instruments and she's like trying to be quirky but then when she auditions for tootsie i just as an actor this is like it makes me on the one hand like excited but on the other hand i just want to cry because she gets her first audition her first freaking audition is for tootsie okay yeah like yeah enough said Right? Yeah, it, it's it's painful. Like I think uh, my <laughs> first audition was for Arby's. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm still like I'm decades into my. And did you book it? <laughs> no, no. I I feel like my 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 decades in, and I'm still waiting for my tootsie. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. When she auditions for Tootsie, they say, we're going to have to see you in a swimsuit. And when she does her audition, they don't ask her to show her body in her swimsuit. Yeah. For whatever reason, she believed she wasn't getting the part because of that. That's right. She's like, oh, they didn't ask for this. So I'm obviously not getting it. Gets on a plane, goes to Paris, gets a call. You've been cast in the movie Tootsie opposite Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. And can you please send a photo in your swimsuit? Yeah. Uh, we need to see it. And she had just sent a bunch of lingerie shoots. And so she sends it and, and gets yes. it. And then she starts to work and she'd never been on a movie set. And she thought she was supposed to show up every single day of this of the shoot because she didn't know any different. And because of that, she became sort of like this uh, protege mascot of the set. Where, like, Sidney Pollack was, like, kind of showing her the ropes and, like, Dustin Hoffman was, like, showing her. Everyone kind of, like, took this shine to her as this scrappy newcomer, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely because of who she is. You know, she shows up and she's ready to work. And she doesn't know you're not supposed to sit next to the director. So yeah. She just, there's an open seat, which is, is pretty wild on a set. I will say it definitely helps that she was probably the, the model on set. That they're like, yes. you know, we're going to let this model sit here. But they start teaching her. Yeah. And I will say, if you are an actor, I mean, this advice, she drops gems. And a lot of them come from Dustin Hoffman. He does stop her from um, having sex with Jack Nicholson because he <laughs> tells Gina, he's like, never have sex with your co-stars. Just like, don't do yeah. it. And she says, later, when she's like filming Zoli, she says, 
Every night for the entire week we were there, we three models and Zoli had dinner with Jack Nicholson. Oh, Warren Beatty showed up at one of the dinners too. One day, Jack even invited us girls over for lunch. He sent a limo, and when we arrived, we watched him swim laps in his pool for a while. <laughs> then he made us tuna sandwiches with a glass of milk like we were all 15 years old. Then he calls her, and he's like, hey, I want you to call me. And she calls him back, and she says, this is Gina, the uh, model. I understand you called me. <laughs> Jack said, so, Gina, when's it going to happen? Uh-oh, well, come on. I should have known this is what it would be about. Oh, Mr. Nicholson, I'm afraid you've gotten the wrong idea. Oh, come on. I'll send a car over. And then suddenly it occurred to me I knew exactly what to say. Well, that's very flattering, Mr. Uh, Jack, but you see, I have a feeling we're going to end up working together someday, I said. And, well, I'd hate to have ruined the sexual tension between us because that's what that's Dustin right. Hoffman told her to Which say. Which was amazing advice. Yes, because it was this uh, dance around the male ego. Yes. Like, well, I can't, if I offend him, um, he could like block me from getting a job. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And Dustin had told her what to say. It was very cool. Yeah, I thought that was, a, I thought that was awesome. Yeah. And then just kind of out of nowhere, we learn she's with Jeff Goldblum. I so know. she said, She's talking about a house that she keeps selling and moving back into that she loves. <laughs> and she says, turns out I bought that house twice and managed to move into it and out of it four times. When I got cast in a movie called Transylvania 65000 starring <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, well, I fell in love with Jeff and sold the house to buy a house with him. I then bought it back after Jeff and I split up. I kept it through two more relationships moving in and out. I figured my neighbors on the street could assess the state of my love life by the number of times they saw a moving truck outside. I was like, this is the introduction to Jeff Goldblum? Yeah, I feel like she could have rented it out maybe instead of <laughs> like, just if I were giving her advice, like in a Dustin Hoffman way, I would say. Right, where you say, rent yeah, it, just, don't yeah, sell it. never sell. Always keep your real estate portfolio hefty. Okay, Janie, the, the hot, hot mortgage <laughs> advice. <laughs> and I fell in love with Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, like that was it. Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, and then- Six pages later, I wish the start of our relationship was as simple as I've described, but I'm afraid it wasn't. When I left for the movie, I was living with and engaged to one of the most wonderful men I've ever known, the actor Christopher McDonald. He was and is a truly beautiful person, and I broke his heart to be with Jeff, I'm ashamed to yeah. say. He didn't deserve that at all, and this dear man eventually forgave me, for which I will always be grateful. And to my great delight, we even got to work together a few years later because he plays her horrible husband in Thelma and Louise. Oh, my God. Yeah, I thought that was so sweet that she acknowledged that she she destroyed this guy's heart, you know? Yeah. I mean, but I also was like, this is the introduction to Christopher But she's kind Donald. of a— di- I, I, don't, I don't mean this in, like, a bad way or— this is going to sound ignorant, but, like, she's kind of a dude about, like, relationships. Like, she's in— she, you mean in what just way? Just like, like that she kind of wears the pants and she's like, and then I was, the, and then I did this. And then I, it's like not, it's sort of a little, it doesn't feel very like emotional, you know, like. But you know what? I, I think that's the part where I'm like, because the whole book is called Dying of Politeness. There's no way in her relationships she was just honest and did things her way and like booted people in and out like really? you think a dude would do. Really? I think she like, could have. I think she might have been like that. Really? I, I don't think so. I, I like this Because debate. of her New England, her like New England demeanor, like her New England, like, 
But that would make you a demure woman. And she even said, uh, the shows Bewitched and I Dream of Jeannie, where the husband tells you to sit on your magic and just be quiet, is what happened in several of her relationships. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. You're right. Um, And one thing I loved in this book is that she's constantly sharing in the book the details of her ideas. Because sometimes people say like, oh, I have a good idea for like a script or whatever, but they don't tell you what it is. Yes. Like she's pitching. She had a killer sequel pitch. For she the fly. Did. She has a League of Our Own pitch. And then in this one paragraph, which I love, she's up to um, be in Martin Scorsese's movie, Cape Fear. And she said, I knew he thought I might be too young to play Nick Nolte's wife, a role that eventually went to Jessica Lange. So I came up with a pitch about why it would make the story even more interesting if there was a reason Nick Nolte's character married someone so young and the impact her personality had on their screwed up relationship. Yeah. Mr. Scorsese seemed dumbstruck by my suggestion. Fair enough, he's a freaking genius, and I should have realized he wasn't someone you suggest ideas to. But I often wondered if the idea of making female characters more dimensional is just something male writers and directors don't see as necessary. I said, hot burn, hot classy burn, so deserved. This man writes women like dog shit. Yes. She acts like she's so, you know— like reserved or whatever, but like when she talks about certain career moments like that, to me, that's like a lot of moxie. Like to come out yes. and to go to Martin Scorsese and be like, this is why, you know, like when she's going after certain roles, I think she told David Cronenberg, like, I get this script. I'm the only one that gets this script or something like that. You know, and I'm like, I love her um, artistry and how confident she is in her artistry. And for someone who yeah. is not like a trained actor and maybe that I have to hand it to like Tootsie being like her first acting job in a way and training yeah yeah what did you make of of her like sharing her ideas and how like no one took them seriously no one but you know like she still stands by them she still stands she, and she'll yeah. be like I still think that would have been the way to go like on yeah. certain things and I love that she puts the specifics in because then you can read it and say yes we now have hindsight to read your specific idea and go, you were correct. You were correct. Your your idea, like her fly sequel idea was great. I very much relate to her in the sense of being someone with a ton of moxie and also crippling people pleasing mm-hmm. and having both. And the thing that, at least how I interpreted it with my own bias was that when she can see it as great art or a good idea or being helpful, it's very easy to be loud with it. But if she sees it, if she she is like, this is impolite or rude or will step on their toes, then she won't allow herself to do it. But she genuinely thought, it'll help me get the role and I'll make the character better and Martin will yes. like it. And then he's like, no, get out of here. And it, But I think if she thought he would have that reaction going in, she would have stayed mom. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's right. Oh, real quick tangent. We have we skipped it, but um, the whole reason Gina is spelled <laughs> um, G E E N A is because her mom didn't want people to think her name was pronounced like Vagi- vagina. Gina. So she didn't want it to be Gina. You know what? Good so, foresight, though, during the Trump years when he was like Gina. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Exactly. Her mom did save her. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right now, and we'll be right back. So perhaps you can tell from this podcast, but I'm a very uh, anxious person. I, I operate on a high frequency and going to sleep is hard for me. It's hard to fall asleep. It's hard to stay asleep. And so the other night I got Next Evo in the mail, at, which is a CBD company, and I ate one of their strawberry flavored CBD gummies that was for sleep. And 
in the middle of the night, I had one of my normal wake-ups, and I thought to myself, ooh, I'm, like, I feel so nice. I'm just going to go right back to bed. And as I was falling asleep, I had the thought of, like, wow, I'm, I'm going back to sleep. And in the morning, I had forgotten I ate the gummy. And I was like, How do, why did I sleep so well? And then I remembered it. So the next night, I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this again. Let's see if magic sleep happens. And lo and behold, I slept wonderfully. So I am so excited to talk about Next Evo Naturals because they have developed a clinically tested water-soluble form of CBD. And their gummies and capsules are proven to work faster and absorb four times better than oil-based products. I am assuming this is the fancy schmancy science that made this work because I have totally taken oil <laughs> droplets of CBD before, like during quarantine. Yes, or my husband, he was just, we were just dropping CBD into each other's mouths and you know, it didn't do much. So this is thrilling that I felt this way. I hope you could feel this way too. They also have their strongest gummy ever, the new extra strength daily wellness CBD gummies. They also have CBD lotion and you know, you know, I mean, instantly on my skin. Just anything that can help me relax, I'm so into it. Next Evo is the only brand that has conducted human clinical studies to test the value of their products, and their label contents are 100% guaranteed, so what you see is what you get. Leave oil behind and start the year with more effective and fast-acting CBD from Next Evo Naturals. Get 25% off using code GLAMOROUS at nextevo.com. That's 25% off at nextevo.com, N-E-X, T-E-V-O.com with promo code Glamorous. When you think of the messiest celebrity feuds of all time, who comes to mind? Is it Taylor Swift and Scooter Braun? Maybe it's Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan, or just about anyone from any reality TV franchise. Dis and Tell is a podcast from Wondery, hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each hilarious episode will take you through one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds and serve you a little dose of chaos every week. They recently covered the story of one of the greatest feuds you've probably never heard about, Prince and Michael Jackson. Even though this feud never really played out in the press, there's still plenty of drama and a lot to unpack. And the explosive and dramatic fallout between Candy Burris and Phaedra Parks of The Real Housewives of Atlanta. They went from TV besties to sworn mortal enemies and their relationship ended with a criminal allegation that rocked Bravo and its fandom for years to come. So if you're ready to gossip and add some more chaos to your life, follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Disintel early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Okay, let's dive back into the episode. Um, so then, I mean, her career is like, it just really starts taking off. She wins an Oscar. Yes. She, again, doesn't think she's going to win because she's getting ready for the show and puts on Oprah where there's a panel of men discussing how ugly she yes. is. And so she's like, well, I guess I'm not going to win the Oscar. Then she does win. Um, she's with Jeff. She calls Jeff Goldblum her soulmate, mm -hmm. which I find particularly interesting because there's like five relationships after this, big mm -hmm. ones. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like she, they're going to divorce and she's going to get married again uh, twice and I think engaged another time. And so- but she's divorced again now, and she can say, like, that person was my soulmate. And they, like, they 
they have a hallway that they consider putting bumper cars in. They have a bathroom <laughs> yes. that they call Wedding Land, and it's just decorated like a wedding. And like both of them are so quirky yes, that they're quirky. just like devastatingly in love. So then there's an incredible story. I'm so glad you shared it, but I wish you'd shared it earlier where um, Bill oh, Murray God. treats her like fucking trash. And basically, in order for her to get the role, she comes to the hotel room and he's like, first off, she goes to the hotel room. She says, pretty me too. Uh, and the role is for, what movie is it for? It's- I forgot the movie. Quick Change. Okay. Yeah, it was called Quick Change. And they asked her to go to a hotel suite and Bill Murray is like, hey, get on the bed and use this thing called a thumper, which is like a weird Already the name of the machine. massage thing is like, seriously? Fucked. And he's like, do it. She says, no, do it, no, do it, no. Over and over and over again. Till finally she says, okay, okay, I'll do it. She And she just Just to, so, to shut him up almost. Yes. And she says, I got the part and it turned out that the thumper was the reason. I later learned it was a test to find out if I was going to be easy to work with, to be compliant. I had just won the Oscar and Murray thought I might have gotten a swelled head from that. And then she says, I had no idea about it at the time. And then she's shooting with him. There was like a miscommunication about like being on set at a certain time between the costume people and like... So she was, like, waiting patiently for the costume people. And then he comes in the trailer and is like, where the fuck have you been? And starts screaming at her, like, get the fuck out there right now. And, like, yelling after her, like, to get out, like, bullying her. Yeah. And, she, like, and she's like, what the hell, you know? She says he gets in her ears and starts screaming, move, 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 move. And he screams at her from the entire walk from her trailer to set is like, go, go. And then he says, stand there and then roll it and makes her act immediately. And she said, I tell this story because sometime later we appeared together in the Arsenio Hall show to publicize the movie. You can look it up on YouTube. Which um, I've seen because it, on it went Instagram. viral yeah. on, on Twitter when the book came out. And it was yeah. kind of shocking, like, that that was just on TV. I mean, I was— you know, alive then, watching TV at those times. I was probably a kid. Like, probably saw stuff like that on TV and just totally internalized it as normal behavior. Constantly. She says, watch how Bill flirts with me and pause at me and even pulls down the strap of my dress. Take note of Hall's grotesque enjoyment of this while you're at it. For that matter, notice how I giggle and go along with it as if we're great pals. I mean, if someone was groping you on live TV, would you be like, dude, back the fuck off or what? I know. I would try and do it with a joke. I would be like, uh, oh, I hope your wife's watching. Everyone take (laughs) note. Like I would try and do something to humiliate him. But yeah, you're right. I wouldn't be like, do not touch me. I would definitely be like, (laughs) ah. I would have been like, okay, that tickles or something. Like, I think especially the reason I love that the Bill Murray story is in there is he's, he has been beloved for so, so long as like this kind of lovable frat boy who can do no wrong. And there was this era where they would be like, Bill Murray pranks, where this man's just like fucking wasted and like walking through mm-hmm. weddings and showing up at weird places. Yeah. And he uh, he domestically abused his wife pretty badly, and it's always been public knowledge and and in their court documents. And it's just never again. Like people just do not associate it with him. I feel like it was something that I learned about later on as well, and it was kind of a bummer because I agree. Like he was, he is revered in sort of comedy circles as like having that laid back, cool comedy persona. Well. 
I love the segue in this because she says, like so many women in a situation like that, I didn't know how to avoid being treated that way. I shut up and played played along. But then one year later, I met my Louise yes. in the form of Susan Sarandon and everything changed. I have chills so, right now because I like, I love Callie Corey. I'm like obsessed with Callie Corey and like. Oh, you tell people her, I mean, so she's behind Nashville. She's behind yes. Don and Louise. Yes, um, thank yes. you, thank you. Yes, that's how she met Susan Sarandon because they came together for Thelma and Louise. Which Callie yes. Curry wrote, and you're obsessed, obsessed. with her. Okay. <laughs> and Gina Davis. <laughs> yeah, I love Thelma and Louise. I love League of Their Own, so I love these chapters very much. And I just loved how life-changing Susan was for her. So first, the the quick story of Thelma and Louise is, is I want to read this on uh, page 153. She says, the roles of Thelma and Louise were already cast by the time I read it. Holly Hunter and Frances McDormand had been the T&L choice of Callie Curry when she was going to direct her own script. And then after she sold the rights to Ridley, Ridley Scott, who ends up um, directing it, Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer become the next pairing. The timing didn't work out at that one as Jodie went off to do an obscure little thing called The Silence <laughs> of the Lambs and Michelle shot Lovefield. Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep were also in the talks as Thelma and Louise. That's a wild pairing uh, that I don't support. But Meryl thought one of the two main characters should survive, and that pairing also faced scheduling issues. As for me, this is incredible. I had my agent call Ridley's office approximately 52 times, that is, every week for a year, to remind him that I was available and interested. I knew an important script when I read one, and I wasn't above pressing my case tirelessly. During that year of weekly phone calls, I even met with my acting coach, Roy London, many times to work on the script. In other words, I was preparing for a movie other actors had already been cast in. That's how insanely fixated I mm -hmm. was on it. And eventually, everyone drops out, and she signs on with Ridley Scott to play either Thelma or Louise. She's like, I'll do either. Let's see who we who we pull mm -hmm. in. And, um, <laughs> and then— Susan Sarandon comes on, she's like, okay, yeah, I'm Thelma. Like, yeah. That's definitely like, Louise. She's I am like, Thelma. is Thelma, apparently. <laughs> yes. And I, 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 yeah, I just absolutely love like how Susan Sarandon became the strong wo woman in her life who like taught her how to stand up for herself. And she said, um, I was preparing for a role and that would come to be one of the greatest feminist films in the last 30 years. This was not where Susan Sarandon was at. As we sat down to discuss the script on the first day, I swear it was like on page one that Susan said, so my first line here, I think we should cut it. We don't need it. Or I suppose we could put it on page two. My jaw hit the floor. Susan <laughs> went through each scene with confidence and ease. Ridley was completely unfazed, of course. Why I had assumed ahead of time I'd need to whip out the girly tropes. I have no idea, but there it was. And then she said, I knew I was on now on another planet, a new, exciting, powerful planet, and Susan Sarandon was the queen alien. How had I never been exposed to a woman like this? A woman who very simply and clearly said what she thought. How could she possibly have sat there expressing opinions that didn't start with, this is probably a stupid idea, or I don't know what you think? Susan was a revelation. This just makes me cry because I, I just thought that was so interesting that this was like the first time that she had ever seen someone act like that. But I also find a contradiction in it in a way because she does pitch ideas. She did call 52 mm -hmm. times. She did think that this was her part. But then, um, but the whole thing about like, hey, this might be a stupid idea kind of thing. That's like, I I do that all the time. And I want a class in that. Like, I'll take that master class too. Yeah, absolutely. I also think it's that contradiction you point out is so... What it reminds me of is 
times in life where you think like, oh God, I was like such a gross, fucking embarrassing abomination. Mm -hmm. And I I bombed (laughs) and I was like, I just like embarrassed myself at that party or whatever it is. And then you could run into someone who was like, hey, you were so funny at that party (laughs) and you were like crushing it. How do I be like that? And you're like, huh? That, 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 that horrible monster you saw who's haunting me and my anxiety. And and like how really, how horrible we can be to ourselves in an inaccurate way where like Gina now knows the, maybe the lengths of Susan Sarandon you can be in a room and is now like so tough on herself when she didn't be the I killer I mean, the queen. truth of the matter is Gina is Susan. She's just packaged totally differently. Like That's we're learning that she so was true. Susan. Like she had ideas. She knew. She, she didn't know she was no, Susan, she didn't but she know. was. She didn't yeah. know. And she was presenting herself as like niceness. And Susan was like, hey, this is Hollywood. I don't take any guff. <laughs> and I'm not going to be nice. So <laughs> then she moves on to talking about uh, filming A League of Their mm-hmm. Own. And oh, Such a I love great, this so much. Yeah. That I often joke that that movie raised me because I just watch it so many it's times. It's so good. Um, I, it's just so good. I found out, I should have known this, but Deborah Winger mm. was originally in the role of Dottie. Okay. And dropped out. When they cast Madonna. Oh, that's Because she was like, ew, a pop star, I'm an actress. Quits. And like, Madonna's incredible in that movie. And I'm so happy it's Gina and not Deborah. I love Deborah Winger so much as an actress. I mean, she is inspirational to me as as an actress and artist, but so is Madonna. So that's so weird to me. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing we learned is that Penny Marshall shoots the script from every angle, from every side, from like a close-up, a wide. It's hard to explain, but like usually you have your set of shots and you have some extra shots that give Mm -hmm. you coverage. And then, but Penny does like every single shot you could ever want in every single way. And they go months over their shooting schedule and their budget. And the cool thing that I like is that we're going to do Penny's book soon. And I've read it, but Penny really comes off as like super confident ball buster, like like, and she's so incredible as a director. And Gina kind of points out, I think she was so insecure that she would mess yeah. up, that she just shot every angle so that she would make sure she had a movie. And I, I, I loved that insight. Well, and that movie, like, it's so, there's a lot of visual comedy in it. And it's all, yeah. like, Penny's directing, right? She must be, so, she must have just been, like, visually needing every single moment to be able to create her comedy with it. I don't know. I I kind of, I'm kind of with Gina uh, because I was reading Penny's book and I was like, I think there's some masked insecurity in here that we're refusing to admit but I liked it. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, but you, you know, because that's, of course, that's how she got the directing job being like, I'm perfect. I'm great. (laughs) Uh, and I'll get it done. We should do a baseball movie about women. And then men in the 90s were like, sure, here's millions of dollars. Like, I like that. <laughs> I love Gina did. Davis's performance not so much. And she was saying how she was like doing Gregory Peck. Yes. Like she was doing like a Gregory Peck, not impersonation, but like his coolness or whatever. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite stories in the whole book uh, is that everyone's really funny. And Tom Hanks especially is so funny. So she goes to the writers and she said, can I please just have a few additional jokes? And... They just don't give them to her, and she's and or they come up with new ones, but they're always for Tom Hanks or John Lovitz. And she said, it can't be that hard, guys, I found myself saying. No, it is hard, they said. It's actually pretty hard to come up with jokes for women. 
I said, why not imagine I'm Billy Crystal? Just pretend you're writing funny lines for him, but then it will be me who says them. But then the jokes for me didn't materialize, and so she realized as Dottie, she's not going to get anything and creates. I mean, I always looked at her as this, like, regal mystic. Like, her performance in that movie is incredible, and she said she was— she was playing silent strength because she had no words. (laughs) But it's so funny because her character, as regal as she was, also could have been written some jokes. (laughs) That's true. And they just thought it was impossible, which is so funny. (laughs) They just wouldn't. And then, oh my gosh, more bingo. Okay, he's not on the bingo card, but I should add him. She, she's okay. She writes this on page 185. For years, I'd had a close relationship with Gavin DeBecker. Oh my God. (sighs) And she says he wrote the incredible best-selling book, The Gift of Fear. And by this time, we'd fallen in love. Gifted that book. Oh, wait, you know the book? I've like told everyone I know to read it. Oh, wait, you haven't read the book? No, because I know him in a totally different way. Wait, you do? I don't know any other way to know him. I I know him because he ran the security firm of several television shows I worked at. Hmm. And so all of these guys in suits, we we always have like, it's the Gavin DeBeckers. It's (laughs) the the Gavin DeBeckers. And and so when he started popping up in celebrity memoirs as like Brooke Shields' only best friend and bodyguard, I was like, wait, what? What is Gavin doing here? He's like, he's worked for like every star probably. Oh, for <laughs> sure. But he's also romancing the shit out of him. Like this guy's a pimp. <laughs> he's you know he's I mean? like the like, safest guy, I guess. He's like the guy that's like, <laughs> hey, you know what? Also dangerous. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right? <laughs> right? That's true. I get that he's great, but for some reason, I'm just like so on edge that he's been with celebrity women, even though he's a bodyguard. <laughs> I get that that's sexy. There's the movie yeah. The Bodyguard. Well, you listen, Again, there's like a paragraph of like, we're in love. And then another paragraph later saying, we're friends again. So, uh, but then she thanks him at the end of the book. She says, and thank you to Gav. So clearly still very close friends. I'm irate. We don't get more relationship information, which brings us to her husband, Rennie Harlan, who I missed this era of pop culture. He was this huge Finnish director who was so wildly famous and just like this like Viking looking yes. guy. He directed her in The Long Kiss Goodnight, uh, which I recently rewatched. And I mean, listen, I know this is an old joke, but Jesus is, that, it's like three movies. It's like three movies put into one movie with the word long in the title. <laughs> it's like, I guess I should have known this was coming for me. And she starts having this like bajillionaire lifestyle, like buying huge giant estates. There's one she mentions. I will put it on my Instagram. It is wild. They, they're helicoptering yes. in and out. They're having big Hollywood parties. And then I, I want to read how she says that it, it ended. <laughs> she said, just about a year after Long Kiss premiered, I filed for divorce from Rennie. He had betrayed me in one of the worst ways you can imagine. I don't intend to go into the details here. Back then, the news, such as it was, didn't register all that much in the wider world, and I see no reason to make it register now. But I will say how profoundly painful it was. I had held fast through the years of being mistrusted because I thought that once he did trust me, he would always be the incredibly loving person he otherwise was. So at the end, my overwhelming reaction was less to do with the nature of the betrayal than the tremendous feeling of loss. I realized I'd soldiered on through all of that. And she's mentioning... He was basically so jealous of past lovers of hers. Like, don't ever take me to a restaurant you've gone to someone with before. Like, don't, I don't want to see any gifts someone's ever given you before. Mm -hmm. Who was that? Don't speak to him. He does all this. And she says she soldiers through it all. 
and yet didn't get the prize at the end. It was shattering. I toyed with the idea of naming this chapter, You Married Him, but given how it ended, I decided to give the donkey first billing because she names the chapter after a donkey. And what I found interesting is that it was widely public. No, I guess I guess I can't gauge widely because it happened uh-huh. so long ago, but um, it was very clearly publicized that she filed for divorce the day after her personal assistant gave birth to Renee's child. <sighs> yes. Okay, I and guess so I didn't she, do a little Googling on that. That is... Uh... Yeah. She, I mean, so she's kind of out there at this huge estate. She is saying no to movies that he thinks would take her away from him. Or the worst one is that he writes this movie and she thinks it sucks. So he's like, you should be in this movie of mine. And she, instead of saying, I don't like this role for me or yeah. I don't like the writing... She says, oh, you know, I don't really think I'm, I don't really think I want to do, um, a, a, like, I'm just not really playing whites uh-huh. anymore or whatever it was, so I can't do it. Then she would get offered a movie role that she loved, and she would go, I'm going to do this. He's like, I thought you weren't playing wives. And then she had to say no. I'm getting, like, because she didn't like want to hurt his coercive feelings. control vibes. Well, I think especially given how it ends. He was screwing he his takes assistant. her personal assistant, who is one of her closest friends. Her assistant, yeah. One of her closest friends because they're like a little bit um, kind of alienated yeah. out where they live. And, get, and she's pregnant and has this child. And she's actually spoken and said a lot of lovely things about, as lovely as you can, about this huge betrayal they both took a part in. I just don't think I would have the class and grace <laughs> that Gina has about it. Yeah. I mean, I know we look at it as grace and class, but I I wish she had written her feelings so badly. You think it's like more repression? Yeah, I think it's more what you're saying of like, I don't want to open this painful box, so I'm not going to do it, which I do, do respect. If you're not ready, you can't do it. But this is your <laughs> memoir, and I would love to hear what you had to say because we didn't hear what you have to say. Meanwhile, the other two have like done articles about it. So I would have liked to hear it, but I get it. Okay. Yeah. So then she, this is incredible. I thought Demi Moore was the first woman to say, suck my dick on screen in G.I. Jane. I think it's actually kind of internet canon. I might've even said it on the podcast that she was the first. I can't remember, but it was Gina Davis who very politely and lovely corrects it and says that character, Charlie Baltimore was tough. All right. I had the honor of being the first woman to say, suck my dick in a movie. So proud of that. I say first, cause there was a second time just a year later, Demi Moore said it too in GI Jane directed by Ridley Scott. So I, I just, I absolutely love that. And then, and then after the long kiss, good night and this divorce from Rennie, she goes into a period where online it'll say like, and then her career lapsed. And after that, she wasn't a star because the movies didn't go well. Yeah. It also coincides with this difficult divorce. And then when Gina Davis pops up again later, she is in the Olympics. Archery. Doing archery. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, of course Gina Davis is like doing archery in the Olympics. Like this fucking badass. Like that's what she did. She ended her acting career to become an Olympian. In reality, she turns 40 and they're like, no more roles for you. Just stop offering her roles. She's so Mm. bored out of her mind. She tries to find a hobby. She's not athletic at all, but she finds that she can do archery. And then there's so few women doing archery, and she's so talented that she she advances for the Olympics. She like goes. She ends up in like the scene, the archery scene. (laughs) Yeah, I just love that flip on it of like 
She's a, she becomes an Olympian because we won't write roles for women over 40. <laughs> also, like, I, like, where's the movie about that? I, I would write it, and I know Gina could write it herself, too. Yeah. So then we're kind of coming on the end of the book. Um, a few very important things happen. She finds out in her 40s, she is extremely pronounced ADD, which— the test for this is like you watch a screen, you press the button when it says press the button. And she's like, I'm really good at tests. You're never going <laughs> to catch it if I have ADD. She comes out of the test. They're like, your ADD is off the chart. You sometimes didn't press the button for 20 minutes after it said to press the button. And I will say it does make the book make a little more sense too because she's she's hopping storylines. Yes. That's true. And yet still wrote it. And it's a beautiful book to everyone out there who does have ADD. Yeah, no, it's a really good book. It's really fun. It's a really good read. Yeah. Is this where we get to the Institute? Or we're not there yet? It is. Yes. Okay. We are there yet. That is exactly what comes next. Because this is my favorite thing that exists. Okay, wait. Why don't you lead us into what comes next? Well, just basically that like Gina Davis uh, in raising her kids is starting to watch television geared toward children and like it's all like male it's all like male uh heavy um storytelling it's like all the elephants are males and at the zoo like yes. whatever cartoons like they're all men yeah and she was like this can't really be true or whatever and then she started like looking into it and she has the kind of like mindset where she has to find out like facts and data about stuff and she was like i'm going to study this and she puts together this institute that basically is like this watchdog media organization that puts together statistics about how many times like women speak in something versus men or something. And it was like shockingly embarrassingly yeah. patriarchal. And <laughs> yeah. We did not have the data. So quite simply by just accumulating the data, she could then go to corporations and networks. And instead of saying like, why can't we have more women in this or whatever, which is very easy for people to ignore, she could say, 2% of your speaking roles were women last year. Yes. Is that something you enjoy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, it pointed out in a way that a lot of people were forced to accept and really reflect on themselves how important it was. And one of my favorite quotes in the book is that she said, measuring progress uh, in Hollywood has been quite easy because there's been almost none, which I also think is so important to remember in this like marketing scheme we live in of women and diversity and inclusion is like taking over Hollywood when in fact, like many of the numbers are down mm-hmm. in some of those diverse categories <laughs> where there's less. It's almost like the way Hollywood, they do this little hat trick where it's like they're constantly talking about women and inclusion and like diversity of storytelling as a way to check the box without actually put, putting Caring out Carrying in any way. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I I admit, like, there are times when I'm like, oh, things are getting better. I think things are getting better. And then, like, an award show will come out, and they're like, not one person of color was nominated or what. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't, how is that? Like, I thought things were, I'm I'm being influenced by the, by the chatter or by the sort yeah. of, you, you know, like. All the noise. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I'm not sitting around with all the data in front of me either. I'm just being a consumer like everybody else, you know. That's yeah. what she's trying I, to do, you know? I completely agree. And it, it's so, it's just so cool that she started this and it's it's still studies, it's still does measurements. She's often giving the data that we need for a lot of things. Um, and it's it's this huge achievement in life. And then um, and then we're kind of like at the end. There's three moments I want to call out. One, 
she constantly is chatting in a an online jigsaw group, and she has um, she has like a persona yeah. uh, that she takes on, and she goes she. But like, there are people out there in a jigsaw puzzle group who are every day talking Gina to Davis, Davis. They don't know. They don't know. <laughs> which I really love. That's so and funny. then the other thing I want to talk about is I just kind of want to read um, the end of the book where she talks about. Um, this, I, I'm not going to pronounce it right, but it's this French word, la escalier, the spirit of the staircase. The French term for thinking of what to say after you've already left the party. But boy, oh boy, it's fun when you do it in the right moment. It's very rare now for me to have regret on the stairs. Wow. Which I thought, alt title, regret on the stairs. And yeah. how she really speaks up for herself. Yes. She, Susan Sarandon's uh, more and more. And her last paragraph is, I wasn't able to change the world before my daughter grew up, though she's amazing and powerful and gloriously self-possessed anyway. But my fond hope is that one day she would be able to say to her daughter, should she be so blessed, you know, once upon a time, women and girls were thought to be less important than men and boys. And my granddaughter will turn to her with an incredulous look and then laugh and say, mom, are you making this up? <laughs> and that's how it that's ends. That's so sweet. Um, and then in the acknowledgments, she says, I love you, Gav. It's got to be Gav DeBecker. I love you, Gav. It's, that's only Gav. <laughs> There's no I love you, Jeff Goldblum. Um, and she she did marry a surgeon after this. Uh, he is barely in the book. The kids are, are barely in the book. And um, and they're divorced now as well. Okay. Okay. I guess I didn't realize that they were divorced. Yeah. The, on- <laughs> the only thing I read online is that um, he filed for divorce and then she filed a petition back saying we were never legally married. Now listen, it's the internet. Who knows if that's true? But that's that's the that's the detective I came up with. Okay. We end every podcast with something I call the book deal test. Three questions. First question: Was the author vulnerable? Did she share her truth? That's interesting because we are talking about how she kept some stuff to like close to her chest, but I think she was vulnerable. I think she shared her truth. I think, she, I, think. I think she shared her truth. I think she was not vulnerable. A decision I respect because I, I realize this test actually like judges women's vulnerability, but I, I get why she didn't share it, but she, did, she definitely didn't yeah. to me. But she shared her truth. Yes, she shared her truth. With depth. Yes, yeah. she definitely shared her okay. truth. I believe every moment of it. <laughs> yes, same. Okay, second question. Was it entertaining to read? Yes, 100%. Yes, I think. I, I, I breezed through it. I did it was too. Great. I did too. And final question, uh, did reading this book elevate your life in any way? Yes, I think it did. I think I think that hearing the voices of strong women who have gone through similar things is always worthwhile. Yeah, I, I think that's such a great answer. And I will also say, yes, this book elevated my life. I read it on my honeymoon. It, it, it was just a, such a fun, lovely, delightful read. And I think she has so... Uh, heavily changed our industry just by collecting the data, by putting her name on the foundation. I, she's like, she, she currently elevates my life that I, you know, I'm a TV writer. So Gina, by doing this work, elevates my life every day. And I always joke that the movie A League of Their Own raised me because I just watched it so much whenever I could. And um, yeah, I just really love her so much. And I hope she writes another book. Um, okay, so Janie, tell everyone where they can find you, follow you, support your work, all of it. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm on Instagram. My handle's at Lebanese Looker. I'm on Twitter still. I know that's weird, at Janie Haddad. And uh, you can follow me those places. I tend to post, I don't know, stuff I'm up to. Um, my podcast, Day of Homekins, is everywhere you find podcasts. It comes out the second Friday of every month. And that's it for now. I, I don't know. I'm just plugging away in Hollywood, trying to 
Guess I'm going. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> Thank on. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this week's episode. If you love this podcast, if you want more of this podcast, go join us on Patreon. If you become a Patreon member, you get one bonus episode every month. You get an email every episode of photos that go with the episode. You get a newsletter of all the best DMs that I get that month where we like learn and recap things. You also get access to our lounge, which is a cookies only chat lounge where we chat about episodes and all kinds of things. There's also other tiers. So you can join for just a dollar a month or $5 a month. And then for higher level tiers, we do a live book club on Zoom once a month where we listen to the episode of the podcast and discuss that episode. So no reading required. That's patreon.com slash Chelsea DeMontes. And that is where we love your support. And that's also where the community is. A huge thank you to our producer, Kate Downey, our episode engineer, DJ Bouncy House, assistant, Jaron Padre, and our executive producer, Jordan Mancata. Our team does so much to make this podcast happen, and I just thank them endlessly. Also, a big thank you to our product partners at Tenteo, Natalie's Juice, and Pattern Brands. They have given us and our guests so many great products. We are going to link each brand in the show notes. And you can find all of the products that I love on my Instagram highlights, where I am always on Instagram at Chelsea Devantes. And I'll see you there or for another episode soon. Oh,